0: Well, uh, as a a community, we are walking through uh, a journey in 2017 and beyond of learning and growing and stretching ourselves uh, in prayer. And so we spent the day together uh, yesterday with uh, John and Prayer Current, uh, training and teaching and resourcing ministry. And uh, what an incredibly rich and fruitful day we had. And so we've asked John if he would uh, continue on in our teaching series where we've been walking through uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, where Jesus asked, his disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray, teach us to pray? And he says, pray like this. And so the phrase we're at today is, your kingdom come, and so John's going to really unpack that uh, for us, and we're so delighted to have you with us and walking along on this journey, coaching and stretching and teaching and equipping us as a little part of God's family. So thanks, John. Welcome here. Thank you. it um, been great to meet you, really enjoyed, edified by the worship, uh, wonderful, warm, Uh, community, and uh, great to see what God's doing in your midst, and uh, nice of Brad to ask me to preach the toughest sermon in the entire New Testament. Uh, What is the kingdom? I mean, uh, a few wars have been fought over that one in history. It's not a topic of irrelevance, and our great empire to the south uh, is a kingdom in its own right, and it's uh, in the middle of turmoil, so... I'm not going to move too much in the political direction because that would be, I believe, a very worthwhile sermon to talk about the kingdom of God in relation to politics, but uh, uh, I believe the prompting of the Holy Spirit was, uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. Is his, uh, But it's worth thinking about, and maybe out of this you'll, it'll trickle some thoughts in your mind, I hope it will, to kind of say what's happening, it's a massive event in our lives, too, to think about, and Christians should be. But anyway, when we think of kingdom, we think of the British monarchy, royal personages, Elizabeth, shiny royal magazines, polite, sentimental hobby of elderly women, uh, like my mother. Uh, when we think of kingdom come, we think of royal tours, veneration of a coming king and queen, William and Kate, nothing of real practical power or significance or influence. So that's our modern concept of kingdom. It doesn't mean much. So I'm gonna to try to start by giving you a, a more uh, a business illustration and then I'll give you a, a first century illustration and then I'm going to look at some scriptures. How do we actually pray this? But uh, uh, probably a little more prelude than I would normally like to give, but we just wanna to try to grab something of what the kingdom is. So imagine a company that lives for profit and is centralized in its leadership and as ruthless in its business tactics and uh, you either pull your own weight or you're dead weight and you're out. So they hire and fire at will and uh, those that uh, cozy up to the centralized leadership and are properly obedient will be uh, rewarded accordingly and uh, you know that's the way it works. Then there's a takeover and another company comes and takes over that company. And this company operates on an entirely different principle. It's all about relationship, it's all about uh, you know those people that aren't getting their job done. Well, let's put them in a job training program. And uh, what about all the people that have been fired the last few years? Let's hire them back. Well, maybe they want a chance. Let's, let's see what we can do. Uh, we're gonna reorganize. We're gonna do stuff together. We're gonna be a team. We're gonna make some great things happen here. And we're gonna provide not only a product that's useful to humanity, but we're all also Going to provide an organization that people love to be a part of, and uh, the, the workers are sent in and they're representing this new uh, 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 capitalist who has bought everything and owns everything. And, and they say, We're just here to set up the new organization. And uh, they people start scratching their head, and what's, what's with this company where you hire people back that have been fired and all that? And he says, Well, the guy says, I, you know, I. Uh, my, ba- my business went bankrupt. I didn't have a nickel. I met this boss, and he said, you want to go to work? I'd, I'd love to work with you. I like your attitude. And the other one says, well, I have cancer. I've got about eight months to live. And he says, why don't you go out with a flourish instead of, you know, rusting out? Why don't you burn out? And uh, so all these, all these people say, and say they, we work for this boss because, not because of the money, but because we love this guy. You know, people come out of retirement to work for this guy, and they love that. And so this whole environment changes, and people are curious what's going on, and then this company begins to change, and then finally, one day, through the back door, sneaking up the stairs, comes up and says, Hey, how are you guys? I've come to see how, what kind of job you've done. And great job. I like the way you've run this team. I've been watching the results. We're doing a great job. Productivity's up. Friendship up. Team up. All our core values are being super. And then he turns to a guy who scratches his head more than anybody else and said, I'm glad you've joined the team. Terrific. I knew you would. I just knew you would. So great. And everybody's just sitting there. And they, the guy walks through and, and, and they're, instead of uh, being nervous, they're crying. What on earth is going on here? That's a little illustration of the kingdom of God. I think you can fill in the blanks of how it works. Then we come to the first century, to Rome. It was a little bit different, but still very much a lot of the language of the New Testament is paralleling exactly what happened when Rome conquered, took over, and established its kingdom. In fact, it borrows heavily from that image. So what would happen is a process. When the Roman kingdom came... See, the Roman kingdom, of course, was world-dominating in character and influence. It was spread by military might. It was maintained by a new law, a new government. Uh, armies would uh, enforce it. Complex infrastructure of roads, aqueducts, luxurious, indulgent leisure, culture and entertainment, coliseums and baths, and a Roman way of life and a Roman peace was established by uh, the Romans. But first they would come to the field of battle, and they would conquer through the legion, and they would literally... Uh, take captive, they would destroy all the implements of war, they would make all the defeated captains and generals put their heads down and they would put their foot on their neck and say, that's where you belong. And they would defeat them in the field of battle, they would disarm them. And then the general of the Roman army would send out heralds to all that kingdom, to the four corners of that kingdom, and the heralds would say, the kingdom's coming. The battle's been won. Just in case you wonder, this is our territory now, any resistance will be met with disaster. But, good news, any of you that are willing to bow your heart, bow your knee, and be a part of this kingdom and pray, pay uh, homage to Caesar, it'll be a new day and you've never had a better day. Oh, by the way, you can keep your religion. It doesn't bother us. Just put Caesar first and offer the incense to this God and everything will be fine. So then after the heralds would go out and the message went out, prepare the way of the coming Lord, next would come kingdom building, the building of roads, to and from roads, the establishment of aqueducts, clean rowing waters, the sanitation, the government, free trade, propaganda, Pax morana, entertainment, all the luxuries that the world has would spill into your city from Rome and all the sewage as well, actually. And, uh, but then lastly, Caesar would come. And that would come in the form of a Pontius Pilate or some other government representative of Caesar would come, and that's like the kingdom coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's now here, and now he's going to find out and make sure his rule has been established properly. So Jesus' kingdom and how it comes is quite similar to that, except for there's a few twists and turns in the story. First of all, his kingdom is a slightly different kind of kingdom two things he said that are different. One was, my kingdom is not of this world. And the second thing was, the kingdom of God is within you. Those were twists on the Roman story. Um, But, and he did not come to bring statecraft, but he said something interesting, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The rest belongs to God. And uh, he prioritized, he says, if you come into my kingdom, you're a dual citizen. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and you're a citizen of Rome too. But never forget where your loyalty lies. Never confuse those two. Never make it a contest between the two of them. And that was very easy for first century Christians because they couldn't be a part of the party because they couldn't do homage to the gods and they couldn't venerate Caesar so they weren't invited to play. Christianity was viewed as subversive right from the start. There were many times in the first three centuries of Christianity that it was a capital offense to be a Christian. There was no other religion in the empire where where it was a capital offense to have that religion. Because our religion said we don't worship any gods, but our God. And so just being a Christian was enough to get you in a pile of trouble for the first 300 years. But it kept the church wonderfully detached from the political process because they said, well, we're not, we don't get to be part of, this, of the powers that be, so why don't we just help the poor and needy? Why don't we feed people when uh, they're dying of the plague? Why don't we take the babies that are cast out and bring them into the homes? Why don't we tell people about the real coming King?" And so they went about the master's business. And I would say it would be hard to find any time of great awakening and revivaling in the history of the church since where we were not detached from the political process. Where where, where the compromise involved in being allied to Caesar um, paralyzed and weakened the church to the point where its witness was almost lost. That's the end of my political reference. You can make any connections you want, but I think what I'm saying is true. So, uh, Jesus' kingdom comes in a similar process. He conquers to inaugurate his kingdom. He has a victory on the field of battle. In a stunning reversal of what is seen with British monarchy, American imperialism, Roman Empire, Jesus, on a blood-soaked tree, became a conquering king in a shameful death. At the cross, he disarmed the existing powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He took away the chief and uh, uh, weapons of war of the enemy, sin, guilt, and death. He disarmed them at the cross. And then he took them captive. And we read how he humiliated them and made a procession of them in front of all of heaven's hosts and armies as he led them in captivity, having subjugated them and weakened them to the power of having no effective power over any of his people and only a residual power in the rest of history. Now he sends out his heralds to the four corners of the world. Now it is, he sends out to say, the kingdom has come. The war is over. Bow the knee, prepare the way. He arrives in person soon. Any resistance will be fatal at that point. There's a brief period here where you get to choose about your allegiance. But the day is coming when he comes, when that period will be over. And that's how he spreads his good news to the four winds of heaven. Uh, to untold hundreds of millions throughout history that his kingdom of peace and his kingdom of power is coming soon. But there's a follow-up, just like Rome, and that's the third step. Like we saw in Rome, he sends workers and builders to prepare the way of the Lord, to build the highways, to level the mountains, to raise up the valleys, to make way for the coming of the king, to proclaim liberty, to restore the streets of the city, to heal the war-torn and weary places of the world, to do justice, to go to Guatemala and help. So the two kinds, two roles of his new citizens, and what it, a citizen of the kingdom is just somebody who's bowed their heart and bowed their knee. The two roles they have, and I never would separate them because they're not two separate. They're two sides of one coin. One is to herald the coming king, The second is to practice justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And those two, when they go together, that's nitro and glycerin. That is the beginning of an upheaval and changing of the existing order of the world. And it always has been and always will be. Finally, his kingdom will come in glory. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we look forward to that day more than we look forward to any other single thing in our life. In fact, it so captures our imagination that sometimes we're just stunned into inactivity. As we behold in awe the present splendor and majesty of our King and realize soon everyone's going to see it. What a day. That will be soon and very soon. Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. It's not that the gun is loaded. It's not that the trigger is pulled back. It's that it has been fired and it is on its way. The day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. And it comes in power, in terror, in wrath to those who resist. And it comes in peace joy and eternal bliss that we can't even imagine in the deepest recesses of our soul what that day will be like. The party will start. This little tiny chapter of history will just be gone, evaporate before us like a morning fog and the light will shine brightly and his kingdom will come and then your dual citizenship ends. You become one citizen in one city, one people, one God, one King, forever and ever and ever and ever, amen. Let's just pause for a second. Maybe part of what I said is, strikes you. Just take a moment on your own and talk to your King and give him thanks for being a great king in your life and in mine in this world. Let's just take a moment and pause before I move on to how to pray our kingdom come. Amen. Now I said our kingdom come, which is a Freudian slip, but more true than I care to admit as well. But I want to talk about prayer and what it means to pray your kingdom come. Because kingdom is what it's all about. People say today the gospel is what it's all about. And I said, no, the gospel is the message of the kingdom. The gospel is how the message about the king and the kingdom gets out there and how we get to be a part of this kingdom. So really praying your kingdom come is the biggest picture praying possible. You can't pray any bigger than your kingdom come. It's, it's the whole enchilada, as they say in Guatemala. Um, we pray this kingdom forward. We advance it in prayer. Yes, we do the kingdom realities that I've spoken of are activated and advanced by prayer. And they stand still if not prayed for. God has chosen to use prayer to be like the transmission of an engine. The raging and roaring and power of an engine does nothing unless that power is transmitted to the wheels. And that's what prayer is. And it's not that we are so powerful, but Ask any great saint or soldier of the cross throughout history, it'll tell you that that prayer turns the wheels of God's kingdom in this earth. And a prayerless generation experiences little or nothing of the advance of God's kingdom. Luther said prayer enacts the gospel. It brings it down. We say your kingdom come into this world. It's not coincidental that it's part of a prayer because that's how his kingdom does come into this world is through the intercessory prayer of God's people. So let's talk about, it's a lot, but I'm going to give you some facets. Six different ways that we pray your kingdom come. First of all, it starts with you and with me. It starts inside. The kingdom of God is within you. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that faith is not just receiving Jesus Christ's death for your sin. Faith is an act of fealty and loyalty to a king. It is becoming a part of the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven and bowing your heart and bowing your knee to a king as you receive his grace's unconditional forgiveness and mercy. He is your Christ and he is your Lord. And as we ask ourselves, how is faith operative in our life? He is your Savior. Is he also your Lord? Does he command your heartstrings as well as offer you his forgiveness? Secondly, in terms of this kingdom of God within you, is that there's a lot of work to do in this heart, for this kingdom to become a part of our heart. There's many idols in our heart. There's things, your heart, until Christ comes in, the house has to be cleaned. That's called repentance. That's called removing of the idols. And how does the idol get removed? Well, you could do open-heart surgery, get one of those clamps, pry the thing open, and go in and dig the thing out, and painful but effective. Or you could so fill your heart with the king that it renders the idols obsolete and useless. When we see Christ in the fullness of His splendor, high and lifted up, then what Isaac Watts says happens, we will pour contempt on our pride. It says at the end of Isaiah 30, when you see the king, you'll see your idols and say they're unclean, be gone, out of my life. So we fill ourselves with a vision of the king is how we get rid of those idols. Listen to what it says in Timothy. The only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Now translate that passage into your heart. To Him, in your heart, be honor and eternal dominion. To Him, give Him your glory. In other words, we don't say, pray, our kingdom come or my kingdom come, but your kingdom come, and that's the first rule of the kingdom. It might be the last rule. For some of us, it's the first thing we learned the day we became a Christian. It's the last thing before we expire, and that is it's His kingdom, not ours. He is not in the business of fulfilling your expectations, I'm sorry, and your needs. It is the, that's, the, that's the worst case of role reversal on the planet. He is the king. His glory, his honor, his will is supreme. And allying ourselves with him will be our true happiness and fulfilling our true need. As a result, we get to walk like royal sons and daughters. I'm still on the first point. I'm spending a little longer on it, which is the kingdom of God is within you. Listen to what Paul says. I pray for you that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Why? Because he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because you're a child of the king, because you're in his kingdom, now live like a prince, live like a princess, live like a citizen of this kingdom. That's our motivation, is to be like that king. Okay, I'm going to go through the others somewhat more quickly. So first of all is the kingdom of God within you. That's where the shop work starts. That's where the citizenship begins to take effect. The second thing is to cry out for his kingdom to come in and through the church. It's an astounding passage in Ephesians chapter 3 where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. The fate of the church is so tied to the fate of the king and the victory of the king is so tied to the destiny and purpose of the church and and that we share the glory of the king. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus for the next six months forever and ever so when you pray kingdom come i'll tell you one thing you'll discover if you pray it rightly you're going to fall in love with the church again you want to be a part of that eternal family that community that group of citizens if you have a mat on against the church if you've got this chip on your shoulder speaking from personal experience if you denounce her and speak evil of her, I warn you. That's the eternal people of God. Part of our loyalty to Jesus is expressed by a passionate love and affection for his church. Confess in your heart if you held grudges against her. Her king, she has weaknesses and she has faults, and sometimes she's strayed so far she's lost the the worthiness of the title. But that's Jesus' job. Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. He'll take care of that. That's his business. Your business and mine is to love her and serve her. Okay, thirdly, day and night we pray your kingdom come that the gospel will be heralded. Listen, this is, I think when we read Matthew 28, we need to realize this is a kingdom command. He says, He says something that only a king could say. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. In that authority, not only that I'm going to give you that authority, but I say it to you in my authority, go, therefore. It is not the great option. It is not the great elective. It is the great commission. And each of us has to ask, how am I going? Where am I going? There's a little passage in Nehemiah which struck me recently and it said, the elders of the Tekoites would not stoop to serve the Lord. So the elders of the Tekoites wouldn't take up the sword and the trowel and help build the wall of the city. They wouldn't stoop to that level. They thought themselves above their Lord and above the people of God. I hope today you're not one of those people who thinks I'm not gonna stoop to that level pour out my life on behalf of the needy. I have my kingdom to protect. Something we have to ask ourselves and say, Lord, help me to be a part of that. So fourthly, we weep and pray and hope for God to restore justice in the streets of the city in our weary and war-torn world. This is that idea of building that comes after the conquering, the building in this world. And uh, in Isaiah 42, You know, we know Jesus came to bring salvation. He came to bring forgiveness. He came to heal you of your sins. But Isaiah 42 says four different times he came to bring justice in this world. He will bring justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint until he has established justice in the earth. a passion for the needy, a willingness to serve those who have nothing has always characterized God's kingdom people. And the idea that we fight for justice, the international justice mission, the things that, that other people are doing, even some people in this room, serving the poor and the needy, that's what we do. That's what we do. We don't make sure that we've read everything Larry Burkett has said and have our 401ks and RSPs in order and make sure that our real estate is well protected. We are promiscuous with our property and possessions and our time. We're careless with it because we said, let's give it all away and keep what we need for ourselves. Some people believe the tithe was abolished in the New Testament. I tend to agree Uh, As a pastor, of course, I was careful how I preached that. Uh, But uh, I have to tend to agree because I think that the Old Testament standard of a tenth was very inadequate. That any wonderful Christian, I mean, uh, John Wesley said, and he gave away massive amounts, all of his writings, he said, if I depart this world with more than my cloak and ten pounds, may I be called a thief and a robber. That's one of the implications of praying, "Your kingdom come." Please tell me I've stepped on your toes at some point in this message. I'm I'm getting walked on, I'm getting trampled underfoot. The army's stepping all over me, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, if you're underneath the feet, then you at least you're at the bottom. You can't fall any further. Okay. Lastly, or fifthly, pray for your rulers. How do we pray for rulers? The average prayer for our rulers to me sounds like a beauty pageant. Lord, we pray for world peace. Thank you for the peace we have and the prosperity. Thank you that we're not being persecuted or terrorized by anybody. Amen. And that is not a kingdom prayer. That's that's a beauty pageant. When we pray for our government and for rulers in our country, we pray, first of all, that they would bow their hearts and bow their knees and acknowledge God as king. God is no pluralist. I'm not saying we shouldn't help be a culture that respects other views and other beliefs, we must. But he is not a pluralist. When Dagon comes into the picture, he falls down. This is king of kings and lord of lords. And Nebuchadnezzar tried to set himself up and said, my kingdom, not yours. And Nebuchadnezzar was just a pagan. And he had to walk on his hands and his knees and be covered by the dew of heaven, and his hair grow out like an animal. And he came to his senses, and it said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? Paul told the ruler of his time, he says, are you trying to make me a Christian? He said, of course. What else do you think I'm doing here? I mean, I don't want you to go to jail like me, but I want you to be a Christian. Do we want every one of our political leaders and every person in this country to become a Christian? Absolutely. Every dear Muslim friend of mine, I want them to become a Christian, and they know it. You know, they'd like me to become a Muslim. It's fair, you know, fair's fair. Let's go at it, you know. That's that's fine, but that's the way it works, okay. Paul says when you pray for your government, you're praying for the advance of the kingdom. You're not just praying for your personal peace or our national peace. Listen to this important prayer from 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Why? That we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Period? No. Next sentence. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. <coughs> Lastly, we pray eagerly for the kingdom of glory to arrive. And for you and I to be among those who eagerly await his coming. If he turned up today, we're, this, there's four good parables of Jesus that says, if he turned up today, are you ready? Because he will come when you're not ready. And he, you don't want to disappoint the coming king. He will come. And today is the day to be ready. Today is the day to expect him, to clean your house, to be in order, to serve others, to say, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting that event like nothing else. And every single day I prepare for that. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we read in Hebrews 9 that we are those who eagerly await his coming. Brothers and sisters, let's eagerly await that king. Did you have the last slide that showed where we'd pray, or are we done with this? We're done? Okay. Okay. The last slide was kind of a review because we're going to have a little time of prayer now. And that is this. I'm going to just repeat it and then I want you to turn to a neighbor if you're willing or pray on your own or politely say, I ain't going to do that, pastor. That's fine. But uh, to take a moment of prayer and to think of one of these things to pray about about our kingdom come. Think of one thing that that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about that applies to you. You might want to confess you haven't thought of something, or you might want to just celebrate something about the king. First of all, when we pray your kingdom come, we pray that it would come in our heart. Secondly, when we pray your kingdom come, we pray for the church, for her tattered wedding garments of the bride, that she would be restored to that shared glory with Christ. Thirdly, we pray for heralds to be sent to the four winds of heaven. Fourthly, we pray for his rule and reign to bring justice in this world and especially through his church. Fifth, we commit the powers that be to his care and his sovereign lordship. And lastly, we eagerly await his coming. Let's take a moment just to pray with each other and take, uh, commit this to God in prayer.